Good morning, good morning. How's everybody doing? I'm surprised Whoa. this, yeah, enthusiasm, I like it. I'm surprised this many people, found, you found your way through the neighborhood and all that fun stuff. We didn't get any warning. We never get a warning. I don't know what it is. I got a text message last night from Nick. He's like, hey, just so you know, you can't get in the park. Um, so they have a scrambling, but we wanted to do a little remodeling project and, you know, touch the, touch the park up a little bit. Um, if you're a guest, my name's Aaron. Um, welcome to Mosaic. Uh, we're pumped that you're here. If you are a Celtics fan, I'm sorry. Sorry, don't mean to rub it in. I'm hurting. I know. All good things must come to an end. If you're a Miami Heat fan, we'll pray for you. Pray that God does a work in your life. Yeah, well, anyway. Um, so, we've been doing a, uh, a teaching series, uh, going through uh, a series called B. And... Uh, the big idea for this series is that when it comes to the Christian conversation, when it comes to having a conversation in a space like this about what it means to follow Jesus and to be God's people, uh, inevitably we end up oftentimes talking about the things that we do for God. And, and, and oftentimes it ends up looking a lot like a checklist of certain things that you do and certain things that you don't do. And so for the last several weeks, we've been talking through and exploring in the scriptures who God has created us to be and how he's created us to live out of that. And, and the, the message this morning is really was kind of the, um, I don't know, the core, I guess, idea and truth that fueled uh, this particular series. And so this is a, a, a message that I've been stirring on and praying on and studying for for a, a while. And uh, I realized last night, very late, uh, that that I was not going to be able to use what I had because uh, it was just way too much, uh, way too much and way too convoluted. And so very late last night, I stripped about 75% of the message um, for the sake of clarity. Um, so that being said, uh, just lowering the bar of expectation passively or aggressively. Um, but really, my, my biggest fear, I mean, what I, what I want to do this morning, my hope, my prayer is just to have an honest conversation about this and to share um, with you about where I'm at and some of the things that God's tearing me open on. Because um, today we're talking about be, uh, be loved and this idea um, that we are unconditionally loved. And for most of us in this room, this is probably not a new truth. You've probably heard this a number of times if you sat through church at any point in time in your story. Um, but what I'm realizing is that there's many of us that just don't live like we really believe this. Uh, and I would be one of those people. And, and I, I don't think I could admit that four to six weeks ago. Um, but very slowly, God has just been showing me how ridiculously religious I can be. Which is a label that I've ran from for most of my life. I didn't want anything to do with religion or religious people. My deepest wounds have been at the hands of religious people. Uh, but when I think back, I mean, just think with me for a moment. Think back if you can. If you are a follower of Jesus and you went through a season where God was doing a profound work in your life and you came to connect with God in a personal way for maybe the first time, if you can go back that far, I want you to think about some of the emotions that you felt. Right, the, the, maybe that was freedom. Maybe that was joy. Maybe that was grace. Um, those are the words that definitely come to mind for me. Uh, something that I had never really felt before. But then I want you to think, and this is the, this is the question that kind of tears me open a little bit. 
is I want you to think about how long it's, it's been since you've felt those feelings in regards to God and how he feels about you. Because for me, what I'm, what I'm realizing, even over the past year, when we launched this church, I was, in a, I was in a good, healthy place and just free. Like I just was, for lack of a better word, just felt like I was walking in this place where I was walking with God, and I just felt free, just overwhelmed that God is so good and that he would use an idiot like me to do something like this. But over the past year and a half, uh, at some point along the way, I just picked up a lot of religious baggage along the way. And I'm realizing that the more that I read the scriptures, the more I'm kind of defaulting to my natural personality, which is to be very driven, very goal-oriented, actionable items, you know, just, all right, I'm going to be a good Christian and just check things off the list. Like this series, I'm just preaching at myself, especially this morning. And my fear is, is that in, in that whole process, that, that that's the same way that I've been opening up the scriptures and teaching. Do this, do this, do this, do this, do this. And when I do this, the, iron, the ironic part about it is it's so empty. And it comes to be so meaningless and so shallow. Uh, and we keep doing this. And so, you know, for me, I, if I have a personal struggle in terms of being a religious person, when I take my eyes off of the message of Jesus, just the pure message of Jesus, that Jesus loves me, that God actually loves me, period. Um, when I take my eyes off of that, I find myself feeling more and more like I should be doing more and more and more. Right? Just this unsatisfied discontent all the time. You ever feel that? Like it's like you focus on one area of your life and you give it extra TLC and you're like, you know what, God, I'm going to be a good single, I'm going to be a good husband, a good wife, a good mom, good dad, or I'm going to up my game reading the Bible, I'm going to spend more time in prayer, I'm going to be more generous, I'm going to serve the poor, uh, you know, all these different things that we do for God. And you just pour yourself into that, and then you, then you realize, you know what, I'm failing in all these other areas. No matter how well I do in this one sphere, I'm failing in all these other areas. And so it's like this just imaginary list, you know, just over your shoulder, that just reminding you of all the ways that you fall short. You ever been there? I mean, you ever feel that? Because I do. It's like the moment I take my eyes off the message of Jesus, that is, it's like the magnetic pull of the human condition to start focusing on the things that we do for God. And if you've been a part of this, community for some time, and you come week after week, and you leave more often feeling heavy and burdened by all the expectations and all the things that you feel you should be doing for God, rather than feeling generous or grateful, overwhelmed at, all, at what God has done for you, then I, I just need to apologize for that, because uh, that's not right, and that's the wrong focus. And so this morning, my hope and my prayer is just to very clearly and very simply get back to the message that matters most. And this is the message that we should be filtering every other message through. So if you listen to past podcasts and I say something that contradicts what I'm saying this morning, I do reserve the right to contradict myself, but this is the one that trumps the others. All right, This is like the thing behind the thing behind the thing. This is the message that we, as simple as it is, is so profound and should always be on our lips and should always be on our mind. The one through which all our messages get filtered, and it's this. Very simply, that God loves you exactly as you are, and not as you should be. That he loves you exactly as you are right now, in this moment, not who you're trying to be, not who you someday hope to be, who you are in this moment. God loves you exactly as you are, and that his grace, it is all-encompassing, it is radical, it is reckless, and it is enough. It's enough.
In Matthew, there's a question that gets brought up throughout the scriptures over and over and over again. And I can relate with this question because it's where my natural kind of gravitational pull is. There's a question that gets asked over and over and over again that I want to look at. And there's a string of accounts where Jesus is having to address the same question. It's just being offered and asked by different kinds of people in different ways. And it's the question, what do I have to do? Jesus, what do I have to do? What's the expectation? How do I get right with God? What is it that I need to do and bring to the table? So in Matthew 18, verse 21, and what I'm going to do is I'm just going to skip through a few of these counts, and then we're going to focus on one parable where Jesus addresses it. Matthew 18, verse 21, uh, Peter comes up and asks, how often do I have to forgive my brother? Seven times? What's 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 the bar, Jesus? At what point is enough enough? What do I have to do? And the very next account is a conversation between Jesus and a Pharisee. And uh, here we find the exact same issue between two very different people. You've got blue-collar fishermen. Uh, you've got a meticulous rule follower in the Pharisee. And the Pharisee comes to him and asks uh, a question about marriage. Right? In regards to marriage, what do I have to do? In this sphere of my life, how can I uh, fulfill what the Jewish law requires of me? What do I have to do? Or then as we move forward, Jesus rebukes his disciples because they're keeping the kids, you know, from coming and and hanging out with them. And then a a rich young man approaches, and he kind of asks that question that's behind all the others. And it's, it's what do I have to do, right? What's the least I can do with respect to obedience to God? What does God want from me? What do I have to do? Moving forward, it just keeps resurfacing again, right? Rich young ruler, a rich young man, he needs to do... Uh, what does he need to do to inherit eternal life, he's asking. The disciples then wonder, what can we do to inherit eternal life when Jesus seems to have pretty, uh, pretty scary words about rich, wealthy people? Like, well, if they can't get in, these people who God has clearly blessed so much, how are we going to get in? What can we do? And then finally, Peter wants to know how they're going to be rewarded for what they've already done. Right? The focus throughout all of these is what We bring this to the table as people, to God. What can we do? And then this is how, and then behind that is a common assumption. And the assumption is that God responds to us based on our response to him. So God acts based on how we act. And he doesn't act based on our inaction. And and this just kind of plays to our our innate sense of fairness. Right? People who are very religious, work very hard to, to do right by God, God blesses them is the assumption. And the people who don't really care, well, God just kind of leaves them alone, or worse yet, they get cursed. And people who work harder get more blessing, the people who work less get less blessing, and that's this assumption. And this is how, the Jew, this was the Jewish understanding of God before Jesus showed up on the scene. They understood that God was just a reactive God who blessed us based on what we deserved or what we didn't deserve. And so there's this and just to kind of contrast, just so you know what Jesus is stepping in and saying here. So Jesus is going to share a story, all right? Spoiler alert. Jesus is going to do what he always often does. He's going to share a parable to show us what the truth is and how we stand before God and how God relates to us. And he's going to tell a parable about a landowner who hires all these different people throughout the day. Some people work all day slaving under the sun. Some people show up at the very end, hardly do anything, and God blesses them all uh, and pays them all. The landowner pays them all equally, all right? That was so foreign to the first century Jewish mind. Jesus is taking what they understand about God, and he's flipping it upside down. And just to illustrate how even the Jewish teachers understood God, this is 
uh, just a, I'm going to read just a very brief little thing from a, a rabbi who was a Jewish rabbi from about the same time as Jesus. And he's going to expound a little bit on uh, Leviticus 26. And in Leviticus 26, it's speaking of a series of blessings for obedience. And there's this phrase where God says, I will turn to you, right, which can also be um, translated, uh, I will have regard for you. And this is the mindset of the rabbi, right? what we're going to read right now. This is the mindset of the Jewish leader uh, that Jesus, this is the mindset that Jesus is stepping in to completely flip upside down. And this is what he says. He quotes the passage, and I will have regard for you. And then he told this parable to interpret it. What is the matter like? It is like a king who hired many workers. There was one particular worker who had labored for him many days. The workers came to receive their payment, and this worker entered with them. But the king said to that worker, My son, I shall have special regard for you. These many uh, who labored with me a little, I shall pay a little. But I am about to settle a large account with you. Therefore, it is, says, it is said, and I will have regard for you. Right? So it's all about what we bring to the table and how God responds to that. It's all about earning God's favor or rejecting God's favor, and then God in turn rejects us. And then this is what Jesus says to all those questions, what am I to do? How do I stand before God? And this is Matthew 20, verse 1. For the kingdom of heaven is like a landowner who went out early in the morning to hire uh, workers for his vineyard. He agreed to pay them a denarius for the day and sent them into his vineyard. About nine in the morning he went out and saw others standing in the marketplace doing nothing. And he told them, you also go work in my vineyard and I will pay you whatever is right. So they went. He went out again about noon and about three in the afternoon and did the same thing both times. About five in the afternoon he went out and found still others standing around. He asked them, Why have you been standing here all day long doing nothing? Because no one has hired us, they answered. So he said to them, You also go and work in my vineyard. When evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, Call the workers and pay them their wages, beginning with the last ones hired and going on to the first. The workers who were hired about five in the afternoon came and each received a denarius. So when those came to the, that were hired first, they expected to receive more. But each of them also received a denarius. And when they received it, they began to grumble against the landowner. Those who were hired last worked only an hour. And you have made them equal to us, who have borne the burden of the work in the heat of the day. But he answered one of them, I'm not being unfair to you, friend. Did you agree to work for a denarius? Take your pay and go. I want to give the one who was hired last the same as I gave you. Don't I have the right to do what I want with my own money? Or are you envious because I am generous? So the last will be first and the first will be last. Right, so this parable just shatters their assumptions about how God works and what justice in God's eyes actually is. First of all, this would have been so odd to them uh, because in this time, if you're a landowner uh, in the Middle East, traditionally, these are gentlemen landowners. Right? So they, they don't do the dirty work of farming their own land. Right? They own the land, and then they hire a, a manager or a steward, and that's the person who oversees all the work. And so the landowner might have a meeting in the morning give him some instructions. Maybe at the end of the day, he gets a recap of what happened that day. But his hands are clean. He's not the one in there sweating and doing the work and managing. That's, that's the manager's job. And so this idea that the owner would go from the farm into the marketplace to find workers and then bring them back to the farm uh, was unheard of. That's just not the way it worked. That was not his job. And yet we're given this picture. Jesus says, the kingdom of God is like this. The landowner goes back and goes, goes and gets them himself, and he does it five times. 
back and forth, back and forth, back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. Unheard of. Absolutely unheard of. And then, in this display of just compassionate generosity, the landowner treats the workers who are hired later in the day not according to what they deserve. Not according to what they deserve, but according to what they need. And a denarius was a day's work uh, wages. And so it would have been enough to feed the family. And in this compassionate act of generosity, he pays these guys that really didn't contribute anything. I mean, did he catch what hour that last group got hired on? It says the 11th hour, which would have been 5 p.m. Right? In a work day that lasted from 6 a.m. to 6 p.m. Right? So those, early, those workers are just saying, why are they getting paid the same as us? And it doesn't even say they started working at, at 5 o'clock. It says that the guy went out, the landowner went out to find workers at 5 o'clock. So by the time they went from the marketplace back to the farm, got him working, I mean, how much work did he actually benefit? Did the landowner benefit? Half hour's work, right? Basically, uh, nothing. And so the, the landowner shows this radical generosity, and it has absolutely nothing to do with what they contribute. In fact, what each one contributes really doesn't mean anything in the long run. They're all the same in the landowner's eyes, and he chooses to be generous uh, towards all of them. And so what we find is that when Jesus says, this is how the kingdom of God works, he's saying, look, God does not reward you according to what you earn. And he doesn't give you what you deserve. Instead, he gives you uh, what you need, which is beautiful. He does not show us compassion, and this is good news. He does not show us compassion because we are good, but because he is good. It's a huge difference. The mindset of these early hired workers illustrates uh, the same mindset of both the rich man and Peter in the, in the passages right before it. And the common problem that they assumed was that they, when they approached God, like they were willing to accept God's grace, but there was a but. It was like, okay, receive God's grace, but then I do something else. Right? So it's receiving in addition to earning. Right? So I, yes, God is good. Yeah, okay. God, I'm entering into your presence. Uh, you are gracious. It's the only reason I can come here. But then, once they're there... Right, it's this idea of, like, then I get to earn anything that comes after that. Right, which is the same mentality that sometimes we just unknowingly advocate, and I probably unknowingly advocate in the church. This idea that, yeah, we're saved by grace, but that whole growing spiritually and becoming a disciple, well, that's something we do afterwards, which is not the picture that Jesus paints at all. Instead, he paints this, this idea of receiving to the exclusion of earning. Right, there's no grace but Right? There's no God gives you or loves you, but dot, dot, dot. Right? God loves you, but you have to hold up your end of the bargain. Yeah, God accepts you as you are, but you better not stay that way. Right? God uh, loves you, but you have a lot of work to do. Right? Grace is good enough, but you better hold up your end of the bargain. You better you know, get up to speed. You're a mess in some areas. You know, God's grace is sufficient, but... But Jesus takes all of these ideas, all of these very religious ideas, and he just flips them upside down and says, no, 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 it has nothing to do with you. It is because the landowner is good. In the end, the landowner didn't need the workers. The workers need the landowner, and he went and found them and gave them all compassionate generosity, saying, that's how God is. It's not grace plus anything. It's just grace. God loves you, period. Right? And if you're new to this whole kind of Christian conversation, like when we use grace, that's for those of us who have been doing it for a while, like that can be a very heavy word. It can be a very convoluted word. But very simply, I mean, grace as we're talking about it here is the, the grace that God offers us through Jesus. Or that Jesus, 
God in the flesh, as the scriptures say, willingly chose to die for us, for our sin, for our shame, to free us, to free us from that sin, to free us from that shame, to free us from the power of all of it, the power of death. That is the grace offered to us. And it's free, absolutely free. Romans 6, uh, 5, 6 through 8 puts it well. It says this, it says, You see, at just the right time, when we are still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though for a good person someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrated his own love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And the see the scriptures is, and what Jesus did is that he didn't, he didn't have to. He chose to. But the truth that if we could just soak and marinate our hearts in this, is that God's crazy about you. And he's crazy about you exactly as you are and not as you should be. He's not crazy about the person you're trying to become or the person that you wish you were. That God is absolutely crazy about you. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. If we could just wrap our minds around that, it it would affect so much of how we live and how we view ourselves. That weight of religion, all of the shoulds, I should do this, I should do this, I should do this, and you just get heavier, I should do this, I should do this. Or the grace of God just strips that away and says, there's no no place for should in God's grace. Because that doesn't matter. It has nothing to do with what you or I do and everything to do with what Christ did. There's no place for any more shoulds. Brenda Manning tells a story about a woman who's a good friend of his named Mary, lives in St. Louis and works out of her home, and she's got this, this uh, banner on her wall. And uh, I love this. This banner on her wall says, today, uh, today I will not should on myself. S-H-O-U-L-D. In case I'm not pronouncing it well enough. Today, I will not should on myself. Right? And so when her friends say, Mary, you should go on vacation. You should get back in the classroom. She's like, don't you should on me. Take your should somewhere else. Right? We, some of us, we've got to stop shoulding on ourselves and on other people. But mostly on ourselves, because we're usually the harshest to ourselves. Right? In, the, in, in the grand scheme of things, in the grace of God, should doesn't really matter. It doesn't really matter. It doesn't mean that we never aspire to become more. Of course we do. Right? I mean, Paul, and Paul even feels the need to correct this in, in the beginning of Romans 6, you know, where he's saying, now, hold on a second, you do know, I know what you're going to ask, I know the question that's coming, right? God's grace is good, it's infinite, it has nothing to do with us, so do we sin more so that grace abounds more? Like we're doing God a favor, so he can be more gracious. And he's like, no, of course not. But the fact that he has to even respond to that just speaks to how good God's grace is and how close it really is. Like, we don't have to say grace but. Grace but. You notice in in any of Paul's letters, I just came across this recently. I'd never realized this. In any of Paul's letters, he never begins with talking about the things that we do for God. In almost every one of his letters, he will take, at times, multiple chapters to reflect, again, on what Jesus has done. Jesus did this. Jesus did this. Jesus did this. It's not about you. And then finally, chapter 3, chapter 4, depending on the letter, in light of what Jesus did, now go and live this way. 
But we often get it backwards, right? We get in religious spaces like this, and we start talking about, well, this is what you do, and this is what you don't do, this is what you do. And people come to Christ, and they come to experience the goodness of God. They experience this grace, and they come alive, and then we bring them to church, and we just pile that religious crap on them. Don't do this, don't do this, don't do this. Well, you need to stop doing this, you know, and then you need to start doing this, 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 and they just are crushed. You can just see the joy just like being sucked out of them by the church. We're focused backwards. We never get to experience the freedom that is in Christ when we focus on the do this, do this, do this, don't do this, don't do this, don't do this, and miss that we are free. We're free. Completely free. Romans 6.14 says, uh, says this, and I love this. It says, you are not under the law, but under grace. That's what Jesus did. Fulfilled the law. Now we're not under the law. We're under grace. Right? Not just yesterday. Not just when we came to Christ, and now we've got to pick up the pace and really go after it and earn it and you know, prove to God that it was worth the sacrifice. Right? But no, we're under grace from here on out. Which means Jesus' sacrifice was not just for stuff that was done yesterday. It's for stuff that will be done today, for stuff that we'll do tomorrow, and next year, and for the rest of our life. It's all forgiven. And the scriptures talk about we are righteous in the eyes of God. And it has nothing to do with what we've done. It's just as an accepting God's free gift of grace and admitting that we can't do it on our own, that we need help, and accepting that free gift of grace. And this is where Christianity kind of forks off from every other religion. Because every other religion is essentially, here's a ladder, here are rules, stipulations, laws, these are things you need to do, things you can't do. Here's a ladder, now get as close to God as you can. You work your way up. That's just crushing. Christianity is not that way. Christianity is God came down here so that we wouldn't have to do that because we can't do that. We could never do that. Completely different. Buddha's last words were, try to accomplish your aim with diligence. Very vague. True, he was talking about something specific, but he didn't say what that was. But try to accomplish your aim with diligence. Jesus' last words were, it is finished. It is done. Completely different. Completely different. Thank you, Shane. Buddha left this world exhorting his followers to work hard. Jesus left this world inviting his followers to rest in what he had already done for them. Oh, that's good news. Isn't that good news? So good news. We just got to get better at remembering that. And I apologize that I've not helped probably in that category. That is just something that's got to be always on our lips, always remembering. Do we strive? Yeah. Yeah, we strive. You know, when I see the needs that exist in the city of Lincoln and I see people in this room, am I praying that we grow Am I, am I praying that lives are changed, that people come to know this grace and this goodness? Absolutely. But it's so different to be motivated out of this general, just this thankfulness. I'm like, God, you are so amazing. I can't believe I get to be a part of this. Rather than the shame and, and the self-hatred. There's no place for shame in the Christian experience or in the gospel. No place for shame. Biblical conviction, when God calls you out, sure, absolutely, that happens. But when it results in self-hatred, that's not from God. Shame is not from God. The response is to be out of generosity. There's a a story in a book by Steve Brown that he came across, and it's so good. Uh, And it's very simple, and I just thought it just 
it just really illustrates this point very clearly, very simply. And he tells a story about when his, his little girl was in grade school and she enrolled in what was an advanced English course. And so she went, and she's a very conscientious young girl, cares a lot, you know, about what other people think, and um, like most people, you know, afraid of failure. Um, and she showed up and just realized that it was over her head. And the students were smarter than she was. She had no idea what the verbiage, what they were talking about, and she was just so overwhelmed and knew that she couldn't do it. So she went home, told her dad, she said, Dad, I, I'm going to fail at this. I, I can't do this. I, they're smarter than me. I don't understand what they're talking about. And she's crying at this point, you know. She said, you've got to get me out of this class and just let me take a normal English class. And, of course, if you have daughters or know somebody who does, they get what they want. Um, I can attest to that. And so he said, she said, you know, can you get me out of this class? And he said, absolutely, honey. So the next day they went in and uh, went and found the teacher, a great teacher, a Jewish lady, um, great gal. And they got together, and she could see immediately, you know, already little Robin was already starting to tear up. And so the teacher said, come on inside. Uh, let's talk. And her dad said, look, this is too hard for my little girl. Like she's, she, her prob- part of her problem is she's very conscientious. She cares about you know, what other people think. Um, but this is too difficult for her. And so I want to withdraw her and enroll her in a normal English class. And so the teacher said, I understand. And she looked down at Robin and asked her father, can I talk to her for a few seconds? And father said, fine. She said, Robin, what if I told you that regardless of how you perform, I'm going to give you an A in this class? What if I told you that, you know, regardless of how you do on tests, papers, it doesn't matter, you already have a name. Would you be willing to take this class? And Robin's not dumb. She said, yeah, I think I can do that, you know, sniffling. And, and so she did. And, and she said, okay, well, could you get to class? I'll meet you there. And so Robin went to class, and, and the father stayed behind, and, and the teacher shared, you know, it's like, what was, what was that about? Do you know what you're doing? Like, is that okay that you just gave my daughter an A? And she said, I'll tell you, what I just did is I just freed her from the possibility of failure so that she can learn English. And that little girl went on, and, and she got straight A's, uh, to her credit, on her own. And it's just a simple illustration that that is, that is what God does for us on the cross. That is his posture. We already have A's. Right? If, you have ever, if, you have, if you have admitted your own weakness and need for Jesus Christ and confessed with your lips that he is Lord, You've got an A, right? So it changes our motivation, right? We don't have to earn anything. We don't have to earn God's love. His love for us has nothing to do with what we do or what we don't. Because Jesus was strong, this is what the gospel does, the message of Jesus. Because Jesus was strong for you, you are free to be weak. Because Jesus won for you, you are free to lose. Because Jesus was someone you are free to be no one. Because Jesus succeeded, you're free to fail. Because Jesus was extraordinary, you are free to be ordinary. You don't have to pretend anymore. You don't have to pretend to have it all together. You don't have to pretend to try to win anymore. You don't have to have all that right answers anymore. You are free from the bondage, from the junk, from the weight of religion to just be in God's presence, and to be grateful. And that's where growth happens, out of gratefulness, out of freedom, that God is that good, and I get to serve him. And all the ifs and all the buts and all the shoulds that we attach to grace don't matter because of what Jesus did on the cross. All right, so here's my, here's my challenge. Here's my challenge. 
Some of you have heard this many times. You're like, yeah, 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 pastor, all right. Hopefully next week is better. Here's the challenge. Like, you've got to let God change your mind on this one. Right? If you're sitting here and you're thinking, I need to do this better, this better, this better, you just missed the whole point. I've got to resolve. I'm going to do this. I'm going to do this. I'm going to, you know, that's, that's, just, that's going to keep beating you down. That's, religion just leads to nothing. And so what I want to challenge you to do is to carve out some space and let God change his mind or change your mind about how he sees you. Just ask him to help you see you as he does. Right? Open up Romans 5, Romans 6. Just sit. Just marinate on that. That is how God sees you. Perfect. Righteous. Even in your sinfulness, God doesn't see it. Carve out some space to do that. Lastly, um, my last challenge would be, you know, one of the things that this, the truth of the scripture is, is that the, the gospel of Jesus, as great as, as God's radical grace is, is that it does demand a certain response from us. And it's a one-time response, in essence, that opens up the door. Right? The message of Jesus is very inclusive, but it's also very exclusive. Because Jesus didn't, didn't claim to be just a, a good teacher or a rabbi or even a prophet. Right? He claimed to be God. So either he was crazy, right, a liar, or he was, he was, that's who he was. Jesus said, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And that was the claim of Jesus. And, and one of the beautiful truths and kind of the ironic flip-flops of the gospel is that the one thing that qualifies us before God is admitting that we're disqualified. Right? Coming before him and saying, I have nothing in my hands, I have nothing to give. And that's what opens the door. And ironically, the one thing that disqualifies us is thinking that we are qualified. And so it begins with just a confession. You know, Jesus, I need you. You are Lord. And as, even if I don't know what it means, I desire to be your man. I desire to be your woman. And, and that's it. Right? The rest, as they say, is history. You know, But if you've never done that... Uh, I would challenge you to, to prayerfully think about that and to do that. And I, w- I want to offer you the, the opportunity to do that. And there's no magical words or anything like that. It's just a matter of the heart um, and confessing that Jesus is Lord and, and praying and asking for him to begin a work in here. And so here's what I want to do. I want to close this in prayer. And uh, if you've never uh, crossed that line and you desire to, I uh, just challenge you to, to pray and repeat after me. <clears throat> Jesus, I admit and confess that I need you. I confess that I believe you are Lord. And even if I don't know everything, perhaps, that the Bible has to say or what the journey looks like moving forward, I know that this is right. And I desire to be your man, to be your woman. So Jesus, I ask that you would begin a work in me. I ask that you would forgive me. And I ask that you would help me to see me as you see me. Overwhelm me with gratefulness. And make me aware of your radical grace and your boundless love. Lord God, I pray for those in this room 
that are perhaps many months, many years on the other side of that decision, but who have picked up a lot of religious baggage along the way, things that we have added to your grace and qualified your love with. Jesus, we confess that we don't always believe your love. We ask that you would free us from shaming ourselves, from believing lies about ourselves, and help us to see us as you do, as perfect, as righteous, as forgiven, not because of anything that we've done or anything we'll ever do, but because of what you did on the cross. Jesus, may we all in this room come to know your radical grace that sweeps us off our feet. May we follow you not out of guilt and not out of shame and not out of obligation, but out of overwhelming thankfulness for how good you are. And may that thankfulness and that joy and that peace just overflow out of us that people might see your great goodness and grace through us. Lord God, we thank you for your goodness. And we pray all these things in your name. Amen.